Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. Coming up on this week's episode, an exploit has been published and shared for the recent Citrix Netscaler vulnerabilities. One password have disclosed a breach, which is a worrying development as this is another password manager in the crossfire. And there were some interesting revelations in Microsoft's quarterly earnings call. For this and more, keep listening to this episode of the podcast, which of course is brought to you by my sponsors. That includes Netrix Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM to remove local admin rights, manage lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And of course, also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And the podcast is also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. If you use 1Password, you likely received an email from the company this week who disclosed a breach stating it detected suspicious activity on a company account provided by Okta. It reads like they cut off the intruder quickly as their statement said, quote, on September 29th, we detected suspicious activity on our Okta instance that we use to manage our employee-facing apps. We immediately terminated the activity, investigated and found no compromise of user data or other sensitive systems, either employee-facing or user-facing. Ars Technica reports that a company IT employee had created when recently engaging with Okta support. The file contained a record of all traffic between the 1Password employee's browser and Okta servers, including session cookies. Okta said then that a threat actor gained unauthorized access to its customer support case management system and from there viewed files uploaded by some Okta customers. The file that the threat actor obtained was a HAR file or HAR file, which is a HTTP archive file that Okta support personnel used to replicate customer browser activity during troubleshooting sessions. Among the sensitive information they store are authentication cookies and session tokens, which malicious actors can use to impersonate valid users. Security firm Beyond Trust stated that the attacker could perform a few confined actions, but ultimately Beyond Trust access policy controls stopped the activity and blocked all access to the account. 1Password now becomes the second known Okta customer to be targeted in a follow-on attack. According to a report, the attacker also accessed 1Password's Okta tenant and managed to view group assignments in 1Password's tenant and perform other actions, none of which resulted in entries and event logs. While logged in, the threat actor reportedly updated what's known as an IDP or identity provider used to authenticate a production environment provided by Google. 1Password's IT team learned of the access on September 29th when team members received an unexpected email suggesting one of them had requested a list of 1Password users with admin rights to the Okta tenant. Team members recognized no authorized employee had made the request and alerted the company's security response team. Since the incident came to light, 1Password has also changed the configuration settings for its Okta tenant, including denying logins from non-Okta identity providers. On October 
2nd, which is three days after the first instance of learning of the access on September 29th, the attackers reportedly again logged into 1Password's Okta tenant and tried to use the Google IDP that they had previously enabled, but were unable to because at that point, 1Password's team had made that change to only to deny logins from non-Okta identity providers. So just on the face of things, from the report from Ars Technica and from the statements from 1Password, it sounds like they were actually very successful with their security measures. Sounds like they have beyond trust and that did its job. They detected the intrusion very early and they prevented the attacker from gaining access for a follow-up attack. Now, this is the initial admission that this occurred. Sometimes a week or two later, a cyber gang may make claims and even share some data on the dark web. So we may have to wait and see if they were able to get any sensitive data. It sounds like on the face of things that they should not have been able to, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. This is another dent to the reputation of password managers, I guess. In a way, kind of. Obviously, I covered LastPass and their security issues several months ago, but even at that, I believe it's still the case that LastPass users who actually had a genuinely unique, complex password were fine and continue to be fine today. And it sounds like hopefully with one password, customers should not have been affected in any way and their passwords should hopefully be safe. Fingers crossed. It does make things a little bit worrying because obviously you put a lot of trust into the password manager because essentially access to everything you use online is possible if someone gets a hold of your password vault. I'm still leaning on the side of thinking a password manager is a good thing because it at least enables people to easily create unique passwords for all the different accounts and services they use. I think we just have to maybe be a bit smarter about what password we use for that password manager making sure it is truly unique, enabling things like two-factor authentication and layering in security in other ways around everything we use online and just the devices we use and even our home networks, I guess. Microsoft was able to beat analyst estimates for the quarter with a revenue of $56.5 billion, which is up 13% year on year. And operating income was $26.9 billion, which was up 25%, with net income at $22.3 billion, up 27%. And it appears per share, uh, the company was up about $2.99 per share, which is up 27%. These strong results were driven by Microsoft's cloud revenue of $31.8 billion, which is up 24% year on year. So another bumper year for Azure. I took a read through some of the earnings call transcript for products and services that I'm interested in particularly in the end-user computing space, such as Azure Virtual Desktop and Windows 365. But unfortunately, there was no mention of Azure Virtual Desktop and just a fleeting mention of Windows 365, just to state that they rolled out new features like Windows 365 Boot and I believe a Windows 365 Switch, which in itself, I think, is quite revealing, right? I think in all the time I've been doing the podcast, I believe Azure Virtual Desktop has only really been mentioned uh, two or three times in the earnings calls. And they've always been kind of vague. It's been like, oh, like a 33% increase without saying what the total uh, revenue uh, actually was for it. 
And so far with Windows 365, they haven't given even any numbers like a percentage of uh, increase or anything like that. Uh, they've only just referenced features and also they've referenced things like, oh, we've got these large name customers. But the fact that they seem to at least more consistently mention Windows 365 makes me think from a big picture aspect that Microsoft and the executives there see Windows 365 as more of a staple for their brand. In the earnings call, they said that server products and cloud services revenue has increased 21%, driven by Azure and other cloud services revenue growth of the 29% and up 28% in constant currency. LinkedIn revenue increased 8%, which I found pretty interesting. And I wonder if that's anything to do with the fact that Twitter has been trending down. Um, I know just in conversations that I've had, a lot of organizations who would have invested some time and effort and money into advertising and uh, driving engagement on Twitter have kind of stopped because they're not seeing the same effectiveness since recent changes. So maybe some of that money is going towards LinkedIn. Office commercial products and cloud services revenue increased 15%, uh, driven by Office 365 commercial revenue growth of up 18%. Windows revenue increased 5% with Windows OEM revenue growth of 4% and Windows commercial products and cloud services revenue growth of 8%. Their devices revenue did decrease, however. Uh, it decreased 22%, so that's quite significant. Uh, Xbox content and services revenue, on the other hand, increased 13%, which to me is actually pretty surprising because, you know, in mainstream media, if you're to go off that, it seems like Sony and PlayStation has been eating Microsoft's lunch on the uh, Xbox and game console side of things for quite some time. I don't know if this revenue here that they post or talk about, if that's inclusive of their PC gaming division. Perhaps it is, and maybe that's why it's getting quite a bump up because PC gaming is still uh, pretty popular. I know I've dived a little bit back into gaming recently, <laughs> like 15 minutes a night, uh, but I see a lot of the people that I'm playing online are using PCs rather than playing on a console. Search and news advertising revenue, excluding traffic acquisition costs, increased 10% as well, which I think is also interesting because it seems like there's more advertising revenue being pumped in through Microsoft channels now too. Again, possibly that's due to the decline of other outlets such as Twitter. All in all, uh, pretty interesting quarterly results, particularly in a time when it seems like the tech industry is supposed to be deflating a little bit at least in Microsoft's world for the most part, there's an increase, although devices revenue has decreased 22%, which is significant. But of course, a lot of organizations went and uh, renewed or refreshed their hardware during the onset of the pandemic. So perhaps it isn't quite time yet to refresh the hardware and that might swing around again, particularly as organizations start looking at Windows 11 and realize, well, our hardware is not compatible, we have to refresh it. So I think that number may increase in the future, even though it's down right now. Techzine.eu are reporting that both NVIDIA and AMD are working on developing ARM chips or ARM chips for Windows, which has led to speculation over the current exclusive collaboration between Microsoft and Qualcomm. Sources are reporting that 
I hate using sources or reporting, but this is techscene.eu suggesting this. But sources are reporting that the chips will not come to market until 2025 from AMD and NVIDIA for these ARM chips for Windows. And that is when the existing exclusive cooperation partnership between Qualcomm and Microsoft would reportedly end. So it, there may be some smoke to this fire. Texine also reported that Qualcomm were meeting with Microsoft this week to show them their latest chip efforts. But the Texine reports go into concerns that Qualcomm to this point have been unable to replicate their success with their mobile device chips for Windows and allude that there could be an arm race. Ah, I get it. Uh, between not only NVIDIA and AMD, but also involving Intel and Samsung too. So I guess we'll have to see how this develops over the next two or three years. Speaking of NVIDIA, they announced in an SEC filing that new US export restrictions on its high-end AI GPU chips to China are now in effect sooner than expected. The curbs were initially scheduled to take effect 30 days after their announcement, which was made on October 17th, and were designed to prevent China, Iran, and Russia from acquiring advanced AI chips. Ars Technica reports that the Biden administration in the U.S. initially announced an advanced AI chip export ban back in September last year. And in reaction, NVIDIA designed and released new chips, the A800 and H800, to comply with those export rules for the Chinese market. In November of last year, NVIDIA told The Verge that the A800 meets the U.S. government's clear test for reduced export control and cannot be programmed to exceed it. However, the new curbs enacted Monday specifically halt the exports of these modified NVIDIA AI chips. The NVIDIA A100, H100, and L40S chips are also included in the export restrictions. NVIDIA also stated that they do not foresee a near-term financial impact from this move. So I guess trying to settle concerns of investors there. It's very, very interesting to have a podcast at this time and be able to kind of go over these stories every single week and basically relay them on this podcast uh, because it's like following this trend of AI right as it starts to boom. And here we see some of the maybe geopolitical ramifications of this AI revolution. I try to avoid getting into politics on this podcast, so I'm not even going to jump in on that and give my opinion <laughs> about this too much. But I just think it's a really, really interesting development and a very interesting time that we're living in in regards to the technology advancement and how quickly all of this is happening and just seeing how this is playing out. It's pretty incredible. Recently, Microsoft CEO sat down for a discussion or interview during a trip to Berlin. And there are some interesting little nuggets of information, um, some stuff around AI, which you know, I just, just talked about AI. And I don't want to beat a dead horse with it and make people fatigued with AI stuff, because even though it is fun and interesting to uh, talk about it every week and see how it develops, eh, too much of the same thing can be a bit exhausting. So if you want to see what he said about AI and all that stuff that's kind of roadmap for Microsoft, by all means, check it out and I'll share a link to a windowscentral.com article with this episode, which is episode 305 and you'll find it at fivebytespodcast.com. But the little tidbit that I found interesting in the article 
was the interviewer asked to discuss a regretful strategic mistake that was made. And when prompted on this, Nadella mentioned the unexpected exit from the mobile phone market, whilst also indicating that there may have been avenues available to avoid culling the whole division. He said, quote, the decision I think a lot of people talk about and one of the most difficult decisions I made when I became CEO was our exit of what I'll call the mobile phone as defined then. In retrospect, I think there could have been ways we could have made it work by perhaps reinventing the category of computing between PCs, tablets, and phones. So, I mean, I've had friends who are not in IT and, you know, they don't even really open a laptop at any point, but they did have a Windows phone and they actually really enjoyed those, uh, was it Nokia Lumia phones? They really enjoyed the Windows phone when they had it. So it's not even just like, people in our industry who enjoyed the Windows phone and kind of regret that Microsoft left the market. It seems to be a pretty popular consensus that people miss having the Windows phone. So it is a shame that there's one less competitor in the market and it's a shame that Microsoft's not in there. Now he says they could have possibly pivoted more towards a defining a category between PCs, tablets, and phones, where they've kind of somewhat been doing that a little bit with some of their integrated apps within Android and iOS for um, like apps, common apps, the My Phone app, for example, in Windows and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's a little bit lacking. Maybe a Windows phone, they would have developed things a little bit better. But interesting nonetheless to hear about uh, an actual regret. Recently, Microsoft confirmed that users can no longer use old Windows 7, 8, and 8.1 keys to activate Windows 11. The Microsoft spokesperson confirmed to The Verge that old Windows 7 and 8 and 8.1 keys are now fully blocked from activating clean Windows 11 installs, and that includes the current stable release version 22H2, not just preview builds from the Canary channel. If you're on these older operating systems, and I hope you're not, uh, the only way to move forward and upgrade to Windows 11 now is to actually like purchase a valid key for activation. VMware disclosed that its distributed computing environment remote procedure calls are DCERPC protocol in vCenter contains an out of bounds write vulnerability. The vulnerability is listed as CVE-2023-34048 and can lead to remote code execution and has a 9.8 out of 10 on the severity rating. The register reported one way to address the situation is to adopt vCenter version 8.0U2 or update 2, which was released all the way back in September 2021. They said it was curious, however, that an archived version of the release notes for version 8 Update 2, dated from October 13th, contains no mention of security patches, nor does the version of the release notes visible today mention whether the document has been updated to address this vulnerability. For their part, the register have reached out to VMware uh, to get clarification because obviously this archived release notes doesn't mention specifically being a patch for CVE-2023-34048. So it's a question of well, if you're already on this version that was released a long time ago, are you safe? Or is there some sort of additional update for this version that people need to install? They also report that it's unusual, but VMware have also released patches for versions of vCenter that have reached end of life, including version 6.5, 6.7, and 7.0. 
which all have fixes for this vulnerability. So if you're using vCenter, there's fixes available for this vulnerability. That is a 9.8 out of 10. So you may want to get patching. Citrix have issued a renewed warning to administrators of Netscaler ADC and gateway appliances, urging them to patch the flaws immediately as the rate of exploitation has started to pick up. There is now an exploit shared publicly, but as reported last week, this vulnerability has been exposed since August. So it has been some time, but still no time like the present to secure yourself and get patching because as bleepycomputer.com have reported, exploitation has started to pick up and has been noticed. So patch for the love of God patch. Uh, if you haven't yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. Bleepycomputer.com also had a very interesting report this week uh, from the NCC group, uh, which shared some data around ransomware activity uh, this year and just recently in September. They said that ransomware groups launched 514 attacks in September, which is nearly 3,500 attacks for the year so far. North America took the lion's share of number of attacks, with 50% of attacks occurring in North America. Europe followed with 30%. Europe followed with 30%, and Asia was third with 9%. The most targeted sectors were industrials such as construction, engineering, and commercial services, with 169 attacks. Consumer cyclicals, which would be retail, media, hotels, etc., with 94 attacks. Technology, so software and IT services, networking, tele telecommunications, with 52 attacks, and healthcare with 38. It was reported that one of five attacks in September came from a new ransomware operation. So very, very interesting, like 80% are big established cyber gangs just constantly launching attacks, but then 20% are new ransomware operations, which is worrying. Unfortunately, that's just the way things are. Last week, the October 2023 update for the Microsoft MSIX packaging tool was released and it had some impressive new features and uh, it's been actually a little while since there were any significant developments for MSIX as a product so uh, this was quite heartening to see. Announced was the package support framework integration within the MSIX packaging tool via the GUI uh, so there's now the ability to automatically apply fix-ups uh, to packages that have compatibility issues directly within the MSAX packaging tool. And as part of that, there's also a feature that's a package analyzer. Um, so if you package an application into an MSAX container and it's not working, uh, within the tooling, you can run an analyzer and just like try to use the application. It will detect what the problem is and then recommend um, fix-ups that you can then apply to hopefully fix the application. This should improve the compatibility or rate of success for packaging applications. Probably not going to get the vast, probably not going to surpass AbV in terms of compatibility is my guess still, uh, because just inherently the MSX container is more restrictive than uh, AbV was, which leads to lower compatibility. But it's going to be a hell of a lot less frustrating than trying to work with the package support framework manually, which I don't think was made very IT pro friendly. It was more kind of developer oriented. Um, so the likes of Tim Mangan and his tooling has been a godsend to anyone trying to work, trying to work with MSIX. And I'm sure because Tim has invested a lot of time 
and effort into his tooling, it's probably still going to be superior to what uh, these features bring. But nonetheless, it's good to see development for MSAX, and I hope there's further developments and improvements in the coming months. Microsoft recently posted a blog post that stated that on October 19th, the Central Bureau of Investigation, which is a federal enforcement agency in India, announced that it had conducted multiple criminal raids in various cities across India. The operation was supported by a joint referral made by Microsoft and Amazon. The joint referral enabled the exchange of actionable intelligence and insights with the Central Bureau of Investigation and other international law enforcement agencies to help them take action at scale. They said this collaboration marks the first time Microsoft and Amazon have joined forces to combat tech support fraud. So I'm sure, I mean, if you own, own a phone at any point over the last 10 years, you've probably received a phone call from some scam artist trying to claim that they're from Microsoft support or maybe they're from Amazon support and, oh, you ordered this package or, oh, we're Microsoft and there's a problem with your internet or some BS like that. Well, together with Microsoft and Amazon, it looks like the Indian government are stepping up and trying to crack down on this type of organized fraud. The statement says that Microsoft, Amazon, and international law enforcement have come together to send a strong message to perpetrators of tech support fraud that there will be consequences for their actions. So, hey, <laughs> about time because those calls just seem to be increasing rather than decreasing. So hopefully this will swing it the other way. Finally, in the news for this week, Microsoft Word was released 40 years ago this week. The Verge had a nice little blurb on it. Not an article or a blog post, just this little uh, infographic, I guess, um, stating that Word was initially released under the name Multi-Tool Word on October 25th, 1983, before becoming simplified into Microsoft Word. Copies of the word processing app were bundled in the November issue of the PC World magazine. <laughs> I remember PC World and those magazines that would come with a, a CD or a floppy disk back in the day. Uh, word for Windows. They stated that Word for Windows version 1 then arrived in 1989. And of course, nowadays, Word is bundled in with the Microsoft 365 offering on a subscription basis. So happy anniversary or happy birthday to Microsoft Word. And again, kind of an overarching theme. It's going to be incredible to see the effects of AI integration into how people use Word in the future. Now, hopefully they can figure out how the hell to get the alignment problem right. How you try to realign an image within a Word document and screws the whole document. It'd be nice if they could fix that. But anyway, now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. Saw a fun tweet from my buddy Aaron Parker this week, uh, pointing out something that I covered on the podcast, I think three or four weeks ago, which was brought to my attention from the uh, Google mail group, the patch mailing group, uh, that Chrome just inexplicably, inexplicably started to uh, install additional shortcuts into the start menu. Uh, these Chrome apps for like Google Drive, Sheets, Gmail, these shortcuts for these other Google services, basically. And he had a tip for everyone on what you need to do to prevent that and to uh, stop this junk from getting into your image. And that tip is stop installing Chrome, <laughs> which, yeah, true enough. I mean, obviously, Edge is Chromium-based, 
but you'd like to think that Microsoft would not make such radical changes. And I say that as someone who's forced to use Microsoft Teams quite regularly, uh, which Microsoft constantly changes the damn menus in. Oh, make it stop. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Google Chrome, stop using it if you want to avoid these random ass shortcuts. And just the fact that Google does not use a standard installer that is not easily customized. So even though they have what they call an enterprise Google Chrome version, it's not really enterprise. Uh, it's not an enterprise browser. It's not an enterprise product. So if you continue to use it, keep that in mind. This week, I saw a open source tool called Zippy, which is Z-I-P and then uppercase P-Y, which is a tool that can classify text as AI or human generated. So that's something I've actually covered on the podcast multiple times over the last few weeks. Uh, there's new tooling popping up all the time to detect AI generated content. And this one will actually uh, detect and tell you if it's AI or human generated. Finally, the awesome Renee Bigler shared on Twitter that the new Teams for VDI has been provisioning partially into the user profile. And he said there's a problem that if the package updates and there's a version mismatch between the packages in Windows apps and local app data slash packages, FSLogix is unable to handle it and Teams will not launch anymore. It's funny, I, I know I alluded, or I know I talked about it a little bit earlier and only pointed out during Satya Nadella's recent discussion and interview uh, about the regret of the Windows phone. Uh, but part of it, he said when he came in, he wanted Microsoft to not operate uh, like it was in silos, that it had a reputation that, oh, you know, no one really works together and there's all these separate divisions and there's not that cohesion. And he thought that was an unfair characterization and he wanted to get away from that. Um, but <laughs> at the same time, these kinds of things seem to happen quite a lot where there's a Microsoft owned product, a first party product uh, that is affected or has problems uh, with a different Microsoft product. Also a classic example of uh, trying to set up configuration manager and all of the Microsoft related runtimes and prerequisites that you have to go out and manually install even though they're all Microsoft owned products is added. Anyways, I'm rambling <laughs> and I don't have any other scripts, tricks and tips for this week. And it's been quite a long episode, so I'm going to leave it there for this week. And as always, thank you so much for listening.